with you. I found myself uh, some years back in an airport uh, getting ready to travel home from a missions trip. I was with a team in Romania, which is in Eastern, Eastern Europe. Um, we had spent a couple of weeks in Romania. We were now traveling our way home. We had gone through a couple of flights. We were now in a city waiting with a layover. We finally make it to our uh, our, our gate, we, we finally make it to the plane, um, and if you've ever flown and you know much about planes, we were on a, flying on a 747, so that's, I think, the largest plane you can imagine. That's, that's kind of what we were on. It's one of those double-deckers. There's two, two, two layers of seats, and um, I, I'm sitting next to a, a friend of mine. His name is Josh, and Josh and I, we get onto the plane. It's a large plane. Right? This is one of the biggest ones you can imagine. And so there's how it's set up this particular plane. There were three seats on one side. There were three seats on the other with two aisles because then there was a center section. I think it had five or six seats going across the center section. Massive plane. And so um, me being a, a fairly tall guy, um, I, I tend to be the person that tries to get into the exit row if possible. And so I, I often will ask at the counter, I'll ask uh, one of the the people on the plane, you know, is there any possible way that I could be, are there open seats? Could I be moved to a seat that's on a bulkhead or on a, an exit row? And, and this plane happened to be completely full except for one seat. They, they, we found out there was only one seat that there was empty in the entire plane. And so there's no opportunity to move. There's no chance for me to move to a seat with more, more leg room. So I'm sitting uh, in one of the three on the side with my friend Josh. And uh, I'm on the aisle, he's on the window, so there's the seat between us, and there's this flood of people coming in, everyone's finding their seats, and as, as, as the, the, the people start to sit down, we start to realize there's, there's no one sitting between us. And so all of a sudden there's this hope, you know, we've been, we've been awake for, for almost 24 hours now when you think about all of our travels, and so there's this, this little bit of hope in us, like maybe, just maybe, this one empty seat is this one between us um, because we've been traveling for so far. And so they, people are sitting down and then we up front, we can see them shut the door. And we all know that that's the sign. They shut the door to the plane. Okay, no one else is getting on. And we see the people that are all sitting down. All of a sudden the aisle in front of us is empty. And we're thinking, you gotta be kidding me. This huge plane seats hundreds of people. We got the empty seat. So we're sitting here um, beside each other. We're starting to spread out to relax, get ready for this, this long flight over the ocean. And then up from behind us walks this, uh, this, this stewardess. And she, uh, this flight attendant, taps, taps me on the shoulder and said, I, I'm sorry, we're going to have to move someone into the seat between you. We're like, ah. Oh. Hope dashed. There goes the hope. And so they move this lady forward. She sits between us and come to find out. Um, we're like, so, yeah, so you, you needed to move. What, was there a problem? Yeah, when my, she said, my seat was broken. It wouldn't recline. We're like, seriously? <laughs> we, we almost had it. We almost had this empty seat. Now, we can talk about hope of having an empty seat beside you on an airplane because if you've ever flown, that's, that's really a great thing. Um, but the reality is this, um, in, in the course of life, the idea of having an empty seat next to you on a plane is, is a pretty small hope. Um, in our life, there are much larger hopes that we have than an extra seat. Um, there are hopes in our lives that have been dashed 
There are hopes in our lives that have been broken, that have been lost. And there are hopes that have far greater impact on our life than just having a little bit of extra space on a flight. Things can seem so hard to bounce back from when these hopes are broken, when these hopes are crushed. And the question is this, when all of our hope has been drained away, when we go through a season or a time or we're in a place where it seems like there is no hope, where do we turn? Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, it's probably the most well-read passage of scripture around the Christmas season because it is the story of the coming of Christ. Uh, But we're going to camp out here in Luke chapter 2 for just a little while um, because there are some things in this passage that I think that we can get some richness from this passage if we look at some of the details of what's going on in Luke chapter 2. We start in verse 1. It says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. So this is a a decree that's issued by Rome. This isn't by uh, the nation of Israel. This doesn't come from Jerusalem. This is for the entire Roman Empire that this this census should be taken. And so the reason why they would take a census was they would want to know basically two things. First off, they want to know who they should tax and how much they're going to get. Um, that's important to the Roman Empire. They want to know how much money are we going to have coming in, and let's go ahead and collect that money. The second thing that they're very interested in is their empire is so large, there's so many small countries or areas or regions that have been brought into their empire that they need to know an accurate number of soldiers that would potentially be in one of these, these other areas. So take, for instance, if there was a region on the outskirts of the Roman Empire and they could find out how many men were of fighting age, then they would know if there's an uprising, we would know how many soldiers we need to send. And so the Roman Empire has this uh, decree that's made so that they would know how much money are we going to collect, but also how many soldiers would we have to fight. We move on. It says that this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And then in verse 3, it says, And everyone went to his own town to register. Now, if the first verse in this passage talks about what the Roman Empire is demanding, verse 3 would not necessarily be a demand by the Roman Empire. This is actually something that would be required by the nation of Israel. So in the beginning, you know, the Roman Empire, we need to count everybody. But verse 3 represents the nation of Israel. See, the nation of Israel was incredible at keeping records. If you look at their history, they would know the tribe. They would know who your, your parents were, who your grandparents were. They would know exactly where you came from. They would keep all of those records, and they would want to keep those stored in a place so that they would never be lost. And so verse 3 isn't necessarily a command from the Roman Empire. This is actually something that the nation of Israel would have required, that all of the people that were of of Israelite descent would have to go back to their hometown, the town that their ancestors had come from, because that's where they would want to keep the registration. They would want to keep the records of where everyone had, had, had come from and where they were now. Also notice that it says everyone. Everyone went to his town to register. Often we think about this story and we think about Mary and Joseph and they're traveling and They're they're making their way to Bethlehem so that they can be counted. But it says everyone is traveling. Everyone that wasn't in their hometown was on the move. 
This is an entire country, an entire nation, where people are going from one town to another all at the same time. You know, we think about the traffic that we face around Thanksgiving and how people are traveling to go visit family and friends, but it's all of that on foot. So all of the nation is moving and, and, and going to where they were originally from to, to be with family. Then we go down uh, just a little bit more into the next verse. In verse 4 it says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to, in, to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. So a few things here. First off, the town of Bethlehem. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a large town. Uh, Bethlehem has a unique history, but at this point in its history, it wasn't seen as this thriving large town that people were wanting to travel to. Uh, the number of people that live there present day, if we were to go there today, is, is around 60,000 people. But if we went back into the time of Christ, we're looking at numbers more in the hundreds. So it's a small town. It's a rural town. Now, the name Bethlehem itself means uh, bread basket, or it means a, a place where bread is made. Um, this was a town that was known for its grain. Now, the grain would be grown here. The town was, was only about five miles from, to the southeast of Jerusalem, and so the grain would be grown here. It was kind of the bread basket of the, of the region, and the grain would be then shipped to places like Jerusalem where there were larger populations to feed the people. So that's the town that we're talking about. Not large, not necessarily a destination town. Uh, for Mary and Joseph, the trip for them from Nazareth was about 85 to 90 miles. Uh, if we were doing that today in our car, that seems like no big deal. Okay, so on Thanksgiving weekend, we can go 90 miles, but for them, they're on foot, as is everyone else that's traveling. The roads are filled with people walking one way or the other to go back to their homes. And they have to travel 90 miles. Uh, the town of Bethlehem also has some history in Scripture, uh, along with some other references in Scripture. If you've ever heard of the story of Ruth from the Old Testament, a story of her and how she um, gets reconnected with her family. And it's really a story of how God, um, it parallels the story of the coming of Christ and how God is talking about the coming of Christ and, and just the grace and the hope he's going to provide, that story takes place in the town of Bethlehem. Now, if you go to another part of Scripture, and it says here that uh, in this passage that it was actually the town of David. Um, if you go back to the story of David's life, this is King David. This is David and Goliath, the David from the Bible. Uh, if you go back and look at the story Samuel, the prophet, actually selects David from all of the young men to be the king. God has anointed David to be the king, but that selection process, that time where he's actually pulled out and said, you will be the king, happened in Bethlehem. So there's history. There's history in this town. There's history with what God has done in this place. But at this point, the town's small. It's shrunk in size. It's a few hundred people. Then we move on to verse 5 and verse 6. It says, He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. Then in verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Let's pause there for just a second on this verse. While they were there. Now, in our 
in our normal stories that we tell and the plays that we see and the songs that we sing, which I'm, I'm not going out and saying we should change all of our songs, change all of our stories that we tell. Uh, but we often think of, or at least I think of, Mary and Joseph arriving at Bethlehem in the dark of night. You know, there's a clear sky with stars, and they come in, and as we'll see just in, in a minute here that they, there's no room for them in the inn, and they find themselves in a stable, and she gives birth that night to our Savior. Uh, but really, what if we look at this passage in verse 6, it seems to imply, it says that while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. I think if we really look at what's going on in this story and in this passage, I think that we can see that it probably wasn't a situation where Mary gave birth the night she arrived. Uh, Joseph and Mary, they wouldn't have traveled right at the end of her pregnancy. It was probably a week or two before she was due. They knew how far along she was. They knew about how long until she would give birth. So the reality is they had probably settled themselves into town. They had probably found their place to stay, which we'll get to in a second where we talk about where they stay. And they were preparing themselves to give birth. And we move on to verse 7. And in verse 7, it says, She gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, once again, I'm not saying we should uh, change all the ways that we celebrate at Christmas, but let's really look at what's going on in this verse. So it talks about how there's no room for them in the inn. And so if we look at this idea, and if we really go back to the language, this word for in is kataluma. Kataluma is, it has a few different meanings, and one of the smaller meanings could be that it's translated as what, we, what would be called an inn. Now, it would really be a type of inn that was designed for caravanners to, to stay in, not necessarily for, for people that are just traveling. It's not going to be like your holiday inn that, that we would imagine if we're driving somewhere and we want to stop along the way. But that's actually not the most accurate translation for this particular word. In fact, this word is used two other times in Scripture in the New Testament, and both times it's in two different books, but it's talking about the same, the same story. It's found in the Gospels. This is the same word that is used when Jesus Christ is with the 12 disciples, and they stay in an upper room to have the Passover meal during the Passion Week. That, that word, upper room, is the exact same word that's used here in this passage. So, this is probably what was really going on in this story. Now, in those times, Joseph and Mary had to travel back to the town that Joseph was originally from. This is where his ancestors were from. So that means he would have family that was in this town. And in the culture there, when you traveled to a place, you would go to someone that you knew or someone that you were related to, and you would ask to stay in their upper room. It would be called their guest room. So how the homes were built then is there would be a large main room that the family would live in with a small upper room or guest room that would be for guests, and when guests weren't there would be for things like storage. And then below the house or maybe on the front side of the house would be an area designed for the animals to be kept. 
Uh, the, it was often below the home, and so you'd have kind of a two-story home with the animals safe underneath and then with the main dwelling place above the animals. And so when Mary and Joseph, they come and it says that there's no room for them in the inn, uh, perhaps a better translation would be they went to a family member's home and the family member said there's no room in the guest room. So it's not saying there's an inn and we're out of rooms. It's saying there's no space. We don't have space left in our guest room for you. And the reason why they wouldn't have space is because everyone's traveling. Everyone's going back to their homes, to the place that their relatives are from. And if Mary and Joseph show up and this guest room is filled, it would be against all of the culture of the time for the homeowner to kick someone out to make space for Mary and Joseph. They've already offered the room to travelers, probably to other relatives. And so instead of offering them the guest room, they find themselves in the place where the animals would be. Uh, tradition has it that that has been, it's been said that that's been in a cave or that that's been um, in that type of a setting. Um, perhaps some homes were built over a cave, but more than likely, it was just a small room attached to or underneath the home where the animals could be kept for the night to keep them safe. It's, so it's still actually in the home. So when we look at this passage and we think about that being the setting, then when we think about the, the story of the birth, the, the, this, this experience that we read about, it would really be that the birth is taking place in almost the basement of the home. The family would be present. There would be all the relatives. And so in the, that time and in that culture, all of the women that were relatives in the family would be there for the birth. They'd be caring for Mary. They'd be taking care of her, taking care of the baby. They would be the ones that would be helping with the delivery. The reality is, in that culture, Joseph probably wasn't even in the room. He was probably with the other men. Maybe it was in the upper room or maybe it was on the roof where they would have a place where they could sit and they would wait for the good news that the baby had arrived. So when we think about the story of Christmas, I'm not saying you should go home and take your nativity set and throw it away, that we should change all of the songs that we sing, but let's get a, let's get a picture of what's really going on here. We've got a story of the king the Savior, the Lord. And he's coming and he's being born in a small family home. I think of this and I think of the incredible paradox that this represents. Uh, this paradox that the God of, of everything, the creator of everything, would come and be born in, a, in just a regular home, a regular place. He would join a family, an extended family. I think about this paradox, and it's sometimes tough to grasp. Uh, but let's, let's just be honest with ourselves. I think that in our faith and in our lives, we often live in the middle of many paradoxes. Now, I, I was reading in a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. And he talked about the tension of the paradoxes that we live in in life. He said, um, in my life, he said, my life, my faith is about believing, about having belief. He said, yet I find myself in doubt regularly. 
He says the, the paradox of a life that is supposed to be filled with love and that often is filled with love, but at the same time, it seems like hate can be so close. Talked about the, in this book, the paradox of the desire and the call to trust others and to trust God. But then so often it seems like life is filled with suspicion and not being sure. And then he said, and then there's this tension, this idea that we're supposed to live with hope, to live in hope, but it seems like discouragement is always around the next corner. I think about those tensions, those paradox, and then I think about the paradox of Jesus coming and this idea that he's supposed to bring us hope through this story. But he is. He should bring us hope in this story. See, after Jesus was born in this setting, then we see another story that takes place. There's another angel sighting just after this. And in verse 8 through about 12, we read the story of the shepherds that were out in the fields and they're watching their sheep. They're tending to their sheep. And an angel, the angel of the Lord appears to them and it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. It says they were terrified. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. And this is the message. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Hope. I bring you a message of hope, a, a message of hope that won't be just for certain people, but will be for all people. They, the angel says, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And so the shepherds, first let's talk about who these shepherds would have been. In that time, in that day, shepherds were not seen as some of the middle or upper class. In fact, they were some of the lowest class people in that culture. They weren't seen uh, with a high uh, level of respect. Often they were thought as being incredibly untrustworthy. In fact, there are sayings in other writings from the time, not in Scripture about how you need to watch yourself around shepherds that they might steal from you. So they were thought very low of. Not only that, on top of them being thought lowly, because of the type of work they did and because they were often working every day of the week, they, it was very difficult for, for them to follow through with all of the rituals that were demanded of them to present themselves to God. So as a result of this, many shepherds would be seen as unclean. It was a group of people that often were ceremonially unclean and couldn't actually go before God. It would be difficult for them to go to the temple unless they had gone through a process to become clean again. So these are the people that we're talking about, and then they are presented with this message by the angel of the Lord. Now, the message, we can read the words, but I think that there's meaning that the message was brought to the shepherds. See, the shepherds, they would understand, yes, this is a message, this is hope, this is joy for all people, but they would understand that if they could receive this message of joy and hope, that anyone could. They would understand exactly what the angel was saying when the angel says that the 
this baby is being born, that this baby is being born in the town of Bethlehem, they would understand what that meant. This isn't Jerusalem. This isn't that he's not being born at the temple. They would understand he's being born in a place that I can relate to. Perhaps even some of them were from the town of Bethlehem. And when they hear he's being born in Bethlehem, you'll find him in a manger. They would understand that the idea of a manger would be found in the lower level of, their, of the homes. They, they would maybe even think, maybe it's my home. Maybe that's, maybe that's where the Savior has come. To my home? To me. So when they go and travel to the town of, from the fields into the town, it wouldn't be something that they'd have to search hard. They'd understand. They'd know where to look. I think about these shepherds, and they've been told this message. And that's the same message of hope that's for me and for you. Yeah, he, we may not be shepherds, but... He wasn't presented to the pastors or the priests or the kings. He was presented to regular people like us. The story of Christ, this good news, is that he came for each of us. That's the hope that we find in Christ. Here's the difficulty, though, in the midst of the discouragement and the lack of hope this message can seem so distant. Through the things that we go through in life, it can seem like this message just is so far away from where we really are. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus is speaking. And he talks about the enemy, the evil one. He says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. And often I feel like in moments and times, seasons, where I lack hope, that seems so much real to me. That the evil one, that the thief, he's here to steal, to kill. He's going to steal our careers. He's going to destroy our, our finances, our marriages, our families, our kids. He's about stealing and killing and destroying those things. He wants to destroy the hope that is in us for a future. Right after that, in the same verse, Christ says that I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. So the hope that we see in this story of Christ coming into this home and being born here on earth as a small child is that we have hope in life to its full. We have hope in a connection with God. We have hope in salvation from sin. We have hope in a future. And the evil one, his desire is to rip all of that away. And in the midst of him trying to rip it away from us, sometimes it's so hard for us to see the hope. So what do we do? What do we do in those moments? What do we do in those times when we feel like, I don't see the hope? I believe that the answer is to know that Christ is always with us. In Matthew chapter 28, he's, uh, he's leaving this just before he leaves this earth. He gives us this command to go to all the nations, and he ends the command to go and make disciples, and he says this, And surely 
I am with you always to the very end of the age. When we're at a point in life where we need hope, when we're at a point in life where we can't see past the killing, the destruction, the things that the evil one is doing in our lives, we can turn to Christ and know he came to this earth to give us hope and he will always be with us. Romans chapter 8, Paul conveys this message once again in Romans chapter 8 that Josh read earlier in verse 38. It says, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The hope that we have is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the reality that Paul is trying to convey to us in this is nothing that you see, nothing that you experience, nothing that you do will separate you from that love and that hope that we find in Jesus Christ that is represented by him coming to earth as a small child in this Advent season. There's a story in Paul's life at the end of Acts in chapter 27. Paul has been in Jerusalem. He's been going on missionary journeys. He finds himself back in Jerusalem, and he's been arrested. As he's been arrested, he's gone to trial numerous times. Everyone finds him. Uh, they can't find anything wrong, yet they keep him imprisoned. He feels like he's not getting a fair shake and so he does something that he has the right to do as a Roman citizen, and he appeals to Caesar. In those days, if you were a Roman citizen, you were brought to trial, and you felt like it's not going to go your way, you can say, I appeal to Caesar. And that means as a Roman citizen, they would then take you to Rome and present your case directly to Caesar. And then Caesar would make the decision, and once he makes it, it's final. So Paul's made that declaration, his appeal to Caesar. Uh, so the Romans have now put him on a boat and sent him to Rome. As the boat is traveling from Jerusalem and is going all the way to Rome, they find themselves on an incredible journey that includes a, a massive storm. And in this storm, the wind is blowing. The ship is really not under control of the sailors. They're worried the ship is going to break apart. And then in verse 20 of chapter 27, it says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope. Have you ever been there where you've given up all hope? The story continues and Paul says, you wouldn't listen to me when I said we shouldn't sail because there was a storm coming. But he says, I urge you to keep courage. So the man of God says, not one of you will be lost because God has come to me in a dream and he said that we will be saved. And then he says at the very end, though we will be shipwrecked, we'll run aground. As the story continues, uh, it says on, in verse 27, on the 14th night we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed we were approaching land. So they took soundings. They found the depth and they found that it was getting shallower and they were fearing in verse 29 that they would be dashed against the rocks. They dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. 
They do all that they knew how to do. Let's drop the anchors and pray. The, the anchors held. The men stayed on the ship through the coaxing of Paul. And when the daylight came up, they could see shore. And when they saw shore, they saw that the waves were actually breaking on a sandy beach. And so they went and they cut the lines to the anchors so that the ship would drift onto the shore and be grounded on the beach. When they were grounded on the beach, the ship eventually was torn apart by the waves, but all the men were able to swim or wade or crawl their way to the beach, and not a single one of the 270-plus men on the ship died that day. They had lost all hope, but Paul said, have hope because of God. God is present with us. There's a story that goes like this in the 19, early 1970s. Off the coast of Malta, there's a bay called St. Paul's Bay. It's assumed that that's where his ship was wrecked. And in the 70s, there were two young teenagers that were diving for fish uh, to fish to provide an income and feed their families. They were fishermen, and as they dove down, they found four Roman anchors. They collected these anchors. Eventually, they were brought to shore. And now, if you go to the shore of this bay in Malta, there is a maritime museum. And in the corner of the museum, in the back corner, there's a small plaque that says, Roman anchors. These four anchors are stacked against the wall, no one knows the story. It's not written that this, these are Paul's anchors. But I think the assumption can be made that these were from this story. And I would guess that if any of those sailors could still be alive, could still be around, if any of those sailors could walk through that, that maritime museum, they'd go straight to those anchors. They'd skip everything else. Because those anchors represent for them a story of when they had no hope, and yet through the presence and power of God, their lives were spared. And I can imagine them placing a hand on the anchor and thanking God for his presence in their life, for his presence on earth. What do we do when we have no hope? We turn to Christ. We turn to his very presence that's here on earth with us that's represented through the story of him being born in this small town. I know that in this season it's easy to be discouraged. It's a season of hope and happiness, but also for many of us it's a season of discouragement. It's a season of despair. There was some years ago that it was just me and my daughter Catherine. She was about four years old. We were in a, in a home together. It was a new home for us. Uh, we scraped together all the money that we could, and we bought ourselves a Christmas tree. And we decorated the Christmas tree with homemade ornaments, and we wanted to put a star on the top of the tree. It was a season where there was nothing that I could do but depend on the presence of Christ in my life. And in that season, we couldn't afford a star, and so we made one. And so we made a cardboard star that's covered with tinfoil. And to this day, we still keep this 
in our Christmas decorations. And we have a star that we've purchased that we put on the top of the tree. And this year, just like all the years past, we pull out the nice, perfect star, and Kat hands it to her little sister and says, Kristen, you and Daddy put this on the top. And Kat takes this star and says, Daddy, will you lift me up to put this one on the tree? And I always say, Kat, do you know why we have this star? And she said, yeah, because that's a time when we didn't have money to buy a star and God's taking care of us. It's the presence of God in our lives in this season. It's the presence of, of Christ that's represented by him coming as a small child on this earth. And in your life, no matter what you face this, this year, no matter what despair, no matter what lack of hope, the place to turn is Jesus Christ. It can seem like so simple of an answer. It can seem like, what can that really do? But let me tell you, the presence of Christ in your life will provide you the hope that you need. It'll provide you everything that you need. And maybe someday, maybe it's next year, you'll look back at your Christmas decorations and maybe you don't make a star. But you'll remember when you gave all that you had to Christ and he filled you with hope and you will look back and say, God was there for me. He was present with me. That's my prayer for you. I'm going to pray for you this morning. Jesus, thank you for the people in this room and our desire to connect with you, our desire to have hope with you, our desire to go through this life and not try to do it under our own power or by ourselves. God, it's easy for us to lose sight of what this season's about, but I pray that each of us would be reminded that this, this is about us placing hope in you and in nothing else. God, I pray that you would be with us as we go from this place today, that we would be willing to share that hope with people that need it. Because we know that there are people that lack hope. God, for the people that are in this room that, that lack hope, I pray that they would give their lives to you. God, please be with us. We love you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. Um, I hope that you have a wonderful Christmas season and uh, have a wonderful time today with your family as you go. Thanks.